still raining out there. It is exceptionally early. My cat woke me up at 3.45. Sometimes you just got to roll with it. I share a little office space in... It's not exactly a condemned building, but it probably should be. Let's just say the leaks are something we live with. We don't fix them. I share a little office with a composer. He's a very lovely young man. The best thing about him is he's hardly ever here. And I believe he feels the same way about me because we just avoid each other. He's a composer, but his desk is completely surrounded by poetry books that are all totally different to the kinds of poetry books that I would read. So you'd think that we would want to hang out and get along, but we we have an understanding. <laughs> we never want to see each other. <laughs> and And that works great. It might be leaky, but trust me, I know. I know how lucky I am to have this little space that is not inside my house to do this. I have some heartwarming stories for you today and then I need to chuck a bit of a tanty. Although I'm not sure that a tantrum is something that you can plan. I have a bee in my bonnet and I need to get it out. So that's what's happening. If you're new here, welcome. I'm so happy to have you. My name's Alice. I am a poetry nerd from Melbourne, Australia. I suspect this is not going to be the best starter episode, but I'll link to a couple down there in the show notes and you can jump into something a little bit less meta. I think we might get a little bit meta podcasty here. I've been thinking a lot about what I want to say today, pretty much constantly for the last couple of days. So Hopefully it comes out all right. We'll, we'll see how we go. First of all, my heartwarming stories. I had some very, very lovely notes from listeners about the last episode, episode 200. And a couple of people actually donated to Elizabeth Morgan House, which really, really means the world to me. To think that this podcast could have some impact on the work that they do there it's just the best feeling. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, over on my sister podcast, Slee Ricketts, Matthew Buckley-Smith made a big to-do about this and he instructed his listeners on how to donate even though they were outside the country. Uh, and part of his strategy there was to, um, because you need a Australian mobile phone number, to input to get that donation through, he shared the number for the Herald Sun, which brought me no end of joy. I will link to that episode. He uh, also shares his exceptional Australian accent. That man is, I say this with the greatest compliments, a complete and total rat bag. The interview that comes after that lovely introduction is with a guy called Carmine Stanino, and it's called The Eliza Effect. It's about AI writing poetry, and I think 
it actually might be a very good starter episode if you want to get into Slee Ricketts, which I highly recommend that you do. I've not been as riled by an episode of that show for a long time. I sat there taking notes on everything that I disagreed with. I also strongly agreed with a lot of what Carmine was saying about why it is sort of a ridiculous idea to think of the output of AI as poetry. And he put forth some very convincing arguments as to why that just doesn't make sense. He actually articulated for me a lot of stuff that I have not been able to put into words. You know, I look at those articles and I just kind of roll my eyes and go, okay, yeah, all right. AI's ruining everything. Okay, here's another here's another one of these. But then the conversation went into territory talking about why we think of these outputs from AI as poetry and why we accept it as poetry. And as I understood it, Carmine's argument seemed to be that if we didn't have poetry that was conceptual, experimental, you know, if we didn't have the language poets of the Flaffists or people like Tristan Zara, then we wouldn't see those outputs as poetry. And possibly because I feel implicated in some of those categories, I resisted that so much. I just thought, hey, but it's, it's not my fault. <laughs> it's not my fault. It's not our fault that people look at this stuff and accept it as poetry. There's got to be more to it than that. That just, it feels like a lot to lay at the feet of poets who write work that doesn't immediately make sense. And I'm still turning over in my mind how best to respond to that. Uh, I haven't quite gathered my thoughts completely. And as I say, there's a lot in that conversation that I thought was very, very useful and very clarifying as well as the things that I really disagreed with. And look, that is what Slee Ricketts does. It's one of the many things that Slee Ricketts does so well. So I will link to that one. I had a, a number of other really beautiful notes. I had just the loveliest email from Anna over in Canada, which really deserves its own episode in response. I will, I will really need to dig into that, and I look forward to doing so. I had a beautiful picture from Adam with (laughs) Princess Leia and Batgirl and a cool robot guy doing a little celebratory dance for episode 200. And I had a note from a listener who, amongst other things, was picking up on that little Ramdas idea, love everyone and tell the truth, which I referenced very much in passing. And... The corrective that this listener offered was a line from the Talmud, in a place where there are no people, try to be a person. Like I said in, in response to this email, there's, there's a huge amount in that Ramdas quote, and it's a, actually a very funny story about how he, he basically drives himself insane trying to do both of those things at the same time. And... Uh, as I think I'm about to get into when it comes to poetry, it feels like it's even more of an impossibility. 
lastly, I, I had a knock on the door on Friday afternoon and there was a man there delivering a beautiful houseplant to me from my friend Kirby, who I don't think listens to this show, <laughs> as a congratulations for making it to 200 episodes. That is so nice. So surprising. Kirby and I used to work together and I occasionally bore her to death by calling her up and talking to her about some poetry-related issue that is getting me down. And recently she messaged me and she said, I think you can be my only poet friend. The other poets seem to be a lot. (laughs) So, yes, I'm going to get into that in a little moment. Just before I do, a couple more heartwarming stories I wanted to share. In support of my argument that we are at peak poetry, people, poetry is everywhere. It is no longer a nerdy, solitary art that you can get away with doing in private. It is just, it's just completely mainstream now. I was at my local and I was reading Michael Farrell's Google Collier. There are a couple of poems in there that I feel really, really moved by. I feel like I can see more of Michael's work now than I used to be able to, which is exciting. It feels it feels a bit more like I can keep up. But as I was sitting there reading the book, one of the staff came over and she said, what are you reading? And instead of Well, look, I couldn't really fake it because the book was right there, but my instinct is to say, um, oh, nothing, (laughs) or, you know, oh, just this book or something, I try to wave them away. But I, I answered honestly and I said, I'm reading this new poetry collection. Uh, This is a guy called Michael Farrell. He is uh, a poet here in Melbourne. And she said, ah, cool. Yeah, I've been looking for some new poetry, actually. I just thought, have you? (laughs) Great. Awesome. And then we talked about where she was moving to and where the the nearest bookshop was that she could go and buy some new poetry from. And I just thought that was fucking great. Like, awesome. Normalizing the experience here. I've also been on a secondhand bookshop mission this weekend because I am trying to track down anything I can by a poet called Vincent Buckley, who the listener who mentioned that line from the Talmud also brought up. Vincent Buckley used to be quite the presence in Australian poetry and seems to have completely fallen out of um, circulation, fallen out of the conversation, even though he only died really not that long ago, like 30, 40 years ago. So I've been having fun going into secondhand bookshops and asking them if they have any Vincent Buckley and they sort of look at me and go, Vincent Buckley? (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. But I did find a gorgeous copy of his second to last book, I think this is, Late Winter Child. Yeah, I'm not sure that I love it, but I am intrigued by it and I do want to know more about him and, and I definitely want to know why he's not talked about anymore. And then I went to Brunswick Secondhand Books, which is a deadly place 
uh, because you just you can't leave there without like six things. I bought a bunch of stuff, including Siegfried Sassoon selected poems, Robert Lowell's life studies, which I didn't have, and uh, this book by Primo Levi that Matthew recommended. I like this one because it has a, a sticker on it that says it is an antipodes import. That feels like it makes it special. And a really wonderful book that I had looked at very briefly before when I was in New York. It's called I'm So Fine. It's by an L.A. poet, Khadija Queen. And the subtitle is A List of Famous Men and What I Had On. And it's a really clever, it's basically a prose poetry collection. So prosy as to approach maybe not being poetry at all. Um, but she uses that structure. She literally is recounting all the famous men she has met and what she was wearing. But then she uses that structure to talk about a whole bunch of other things. And it's very fun and extremely juicy and gossipy. Here's a little one about the novelist Walter Mosley. I have not heard of him before, but this is the poem about him. Walter Mosley mostly looked at our cleavage. I was with three friends at AWP and didn't think that was appropriate at writing functions. I was so green, a grad student, and probably shouldn't be saying this now, but for whatever reason, he felt comfortable enough to lower his eyes slowly chestward, then raise them and say, you have to write every single day. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> I think that's very funny. Uh, back to my heartwarming story. So when I was buying these books, you know, the guy was telling up my total, looking at what I had bought, and he said, you know, it's like you wouldn't write it. It's just so um, <laughs> kind of lame, really. <laughs> but he said, so you're into poetry? And I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, that's so cool. <laughs> I mean, is it? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it peak poetry, people. Like, uh, buying Robert Lowell's Life Studies is now a fashion statement. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, boy. It is early. Speaking of peak, I was at the gym and I saw some reality show where one of the contestants, you know how they have their name and they have their profession. The contestant was described as a podcaster. And that was deeply unsettling. Deeply unsettling. Which brings me to my highly planned and semi-scripted tantrum that I have for you today. All right, I need to take a deep breath. All right, what am I trying to say here? Joke's on me. <laughs> I recorded and edited the last half of this, listened back to it, absolutely hated it, and it is now the end of the day and I'm still trying to figure out what it is that I'm trying to say to you. Oh my goodness, this is such an amazing example of overthinking. I'm doing so well. What I'm really trying to talk about is fear. Specifically the fear that we have of each other, we being poets. 
in the course of making this show, I get a very particular, very special vantage point into the poetry world because I'm part of various levels of conversation. I have the interviews themselves. I have the exchanges with listeners and friends who aren't poets and who are. I have exchanges with potential and future guests, and that includes the people who say no, or the people who say not right now. And I have always been very aware of the caution and the wariness, the atmosphere when poets are talking to me, uh, talking about their work, talking about each other. James Jang put this so perfectly when I spoke with him. The certain claustrophobia is how he described it. And I think that was there even in the very first interviews that I ever did. When I think back on those now. Every now and again, like happened the other day, this wariness, this caution reaches a kind of fever pitch in my little tiny world. And the other day, a couple of conversations just coalesced. Everything came together and all of a sudden, I could just see it. I could see this undeniable picture of everyone around me being really, really afraid and that we were all afraid of each other. I could see that there were lots and lots of people in various um, stages of their work, holding various roles in poetry, who were being very quiet, not necessarily because they wanted to be or because that was their, their natural way of being, but because they felt like they had to. And so, of course, very, very selfishly, I kick against this because what I want to do is make an interesting show and I want to ask big questions. I want to be respectful but I also want to be honest and I want to have fun and I want you to have fun. Above all, above all, I don't want this show to be homework. (laughs) I don't want to put together interviews that people feel like they have to Um, get through. I used to love the podcast Commonplace and I really respect Rachel as a poet, Rachel Zucker, who makes it, Um, but I don't listen to that show anymore and I don't listen to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast or or really many others at all, (laughs) if I'm very honest, because they're all so goddamn safe. They're so safe. And I listen to them and I sort of think, like, does poetry really need this many guardrails? So, yeah, I feel, I feel frustrated. This is, this is my tantrum. <laughs> I'm, I'm not frustrated at the people who are wary, to be clear. I understand that. I'm wary too. I recorded this and then scrapped it because I felt like I got it wrong. Uh... I'm frustrated at the atmosphere that encourages the wariness. And so I'm trying to figure out, and I have been all day and for days beforehand, I'm trying to figure out 
what is it specifically that we are afraid of? And what is this atmosphere that I'm talking about actually made of? What is it made up of? The first question is really, really easy to answer, I think. There are lots of answers. Essentially, it comes down to any territory or standing or reputation or influence, any place that you have in poetry is really hard won. I think this is true in Australia and also overseas. When you start out, you know, there's not much to fear because uh, the only thing that can happen to you is that your poem gets rejected. But then you get further in and, and you accumulate more uh, connections and, and publications and, and uh, some kind of world gets built up around you. But whatever that is made up of, you've lost something to get it, most likely. You've definitely lost time and money. You might have even lost a relationship or two. So that means that you're where you are for the love of it. You work in and around poetry, you write poetry, because you love it. And it's not like it's a vocation that you can switch off, and it's not a transferable skill. Although, shout out to my fellow proofreaders, editors, copywriters, website wranglers. You have to pay the bills somehow. (laughs) So... So given all that, given what you've put in, of course you don't want to do anything to lose the ground that you've gained. You don't want to take risks. And why the hell should you? You know, you could lose anything from publication opportunities through to uh, employment, friends. And it probably wouldn't take very much. I think we all know this. And... And we get cautious. You make sure you say the right things to the right people at the right time. You make sure you don't say the wrong things to anyone. And that is so understandable. This is where I keep getting stuck. (laughs) It's because like, obviously there are things that you say that are wrong and you shouldn't say them. (laughs) And you should get in trouble. Uh... Yeah, fuck. <laughs> this is so hard to talk about. I'm just I'm just going to trust that you know what I mean. I think this is so understandable. The other part of it, the atmosphere part, what does the atmosphere consist of? What are the factors that make people wary? I don't think it's as simple as saying getting called out on Twitter. Although, honestly, I haven't missed that place for even a second. If you are considering leaving, just trust me. It's so much better. So much better on the other side. Um, Yeah, I don't think it's that simple. And I think it would be crazy to say that, you know, the speed with which your words can be fed back to you in a twisted kind of form is not conducive to people being willing to take risks in their writing or in their thinking. We can't rule that out, but I don't, I don't think that's the whole game. The size of the community is something that obviously I come back to all the time. And even though, you know, we're at peak poetry and communities feel bigger and more expansive than they maybe ever were, 
clearly they aren't quite big enough. Or maybe it's not a matter of size. I don't know. Maybe it is a matter of money or maybe it's not. Maybe it's all the fault of the fucking universities, which would be convenient because I have no problem tearing into academia. (laughs) I have too many friends who have had their lives completely chewed to pieces by their jobs at universities and I will never, ever go near one of those places again. (laughs) So, like, if this is all the fault of the um, Australian higher education system uh, just compressing people until they feel that they have no time or freedom or anywhere to move, then great. I don't know how you solve it, but at least at least we know who to blame. <laughs> Honestly, I am I am just so stumped. I don't believe that there are many examples of people in poetry who spend their time looking for ways to tear other poets down. I do believe that they are out there. I don't think they are particularly numerous. Although I suppose it only takes one. That said, uh, I'm also aware that a lot of the, the conversations that get particularly head up and, um, and where people do the, the really fiery back and forth like that stuff happens in places where I'm not you know I I I, even when I had social media accounts I never looked at the timeline I was totally selfish I posted my own stuff and then I got the hell out of there and I would only hear about things years later standing in people's kitchens after I interviewed them but generally I'm sort of dopely oblivious to that stuff and that's kind of a self-protective thing because honestly when I hear about that stuff, I, I feel kind of sick, like I feel sad and worried for all of us. To borrow from that conversation with Carmine again, I think this is the point at which I have to move to a corrective. <laughs> Obviously the corrective is not love everyone and tell the truth. That, that didn't work for Ramdas, it's not going to work for me. And also, in all of this, I'm thinking, you can't demand courage from people. Particularly, you know, I can't say, hey, everyone, just be braver. If I'm the one sitting here um, listening and listening and listening back to what I said and editing the fuck out of it and then chucking it all away. <laughs> like, this is, this is not a picture of courage over here. I'm going to... Um, my corrective turn is going to be towards the transcendent actress Michelle Pfeiffer, who I watched in a movie called French Exit over the weekend. I also watched a movie called Manchester by the Sea by Kenneth Lonergan. If you have seen that, I would love to talk to you about it. If you haven't seen it, I do not recommend it, Uh, particularly if you have children. um, It is the best and most devastating film I have seen for like five years. But French Exit, everyone should watch. It's, um, it's light, it's fluffy, it's uh, what, if, what if Wes Anderson, but not annoying. And essentially the plot is Michelle Pfeiffer 
is running out of money. She has decided she's going to take her remaining fortune, go to Paris, give most of it away, and then kill herself. She is completely mesmerizing in this film, and the camera knows it, thank God. And there's two things about her that I think make her mesmerizing in that way. She's fearless, for one thing. But she's also generous, not just with her money, but with herself. And strangely, for a character who is almost stony, she's very loving. I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe. But it was one of those films that I watched and, and the whole way through, I was just thinking, God, I wish I had that. I wish I had those qualities. More seriously, uh, away from, from the movie references, I, I just got an email from uh, that same listener who was referencing the Talmud earlier. We've been going back and forth about Vincent Buckley and he sent me a quote about Buckley from the Australian poet and priest, I had forgotten about the priest part, uh, Peter Steele who said of Buckley, he regarded poetry as the great mediator or interpreter between the solitudes of the self and the bulking realities of the world. Now, this listener was exceptionally kind and said, I thought that's not a bad way of describing the poetry says ethos. I don't know if I could come anywhere close to that, but mediating and interpreting um, the space between the realities of the world and the solitudes of the self. That sounds like a good goal. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm so stumped. If you've got any ideas, <laughs> please, please let me know. How do we, how do we get less cautious? How do we move away from the wariness? Just as a final little note, I'm going to read one more of these gorgeous little prose poems from the Khadijah Queen collection. This one is about Edward Norton. Edward Norton just stared. He was on his cell phone, going up the escalator at Port Authority. I was going down, and when we met in the middle, he said, you are gorgeous. I was 36, and so NYC, in a black turtleneck and salt and pepper curls, and just starting not to be sad or afraid. <laughs>